HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys, we're in the second segment of the State of the Cider Industry. It's Cider Week, New York City, 2018. It's November 6th, and we're here in the back of Roberta's Pizza. If you happen to be around in the city after the show at 6, we're going to stop in the Roberta's Pizza Tiki Tent. We're going to have a cider maker uh, hangout and bottle share. I know you get to try some original Sin cider and Graf cider and some other good stuff. But we've got some great guests here. We, we were just talking with uh, some national uh, figures about the state of the cider industry. And uh, Gideon, you know, uh, Gideon Claw from Original Sin, you're one of the reasons we, we put together this special podcast. Um, what, what is it about the, the, the industry as a whole in this country that you wanted to address mostly? You know, I just think that it's an industry which um, has attracted such a colorful group of people who have just such different visions of what cider can be, which is to the benefit of the category, including people in this room. Um, And I think that uh, as cider grows and and as bars start adopting a policy of having more than one cider, that really is a critical element of it. Great. So uh, Gideon's here. And Ron Ron Sansone, you also wanted to do the show. You you were a podcaster and a blogger who's uh, opened your own cidery, spoke and spy in Middleton, Connecticut, right? Yeah, it's been exciting. Traveling the world, drinking cider, meeting people like Iran and everyone. And then what, and something new's a, coming up, right? You got a, a, a Connecticut, Connecticut Cider, cider week, week is a new thing we, we did. We actually created a cider association, and then we created a Connecticut Cider Week, and it's our inaugural year. Next week, we're going to have our first. Great. And uh, Eleanor, you're with us from Eden Cider. In Vermont. Hello. And you also, you have a, a new tap room too, don't you? Yeah, in Winooski, which is right. It's the Brooklyn of Burlington. Right near Burlington. And we got Kyle here, uh, Kyle Scherer from Graft. Hey, how's it going? In the Hudson Valley, right? Yep. What town are you in, actually? Uh, we're in Newburgh, New York, which is uh, about an hour and a half up from New York City. And then is there a tasting room there also? There isn't. We're hoping to open up Barrel House right across the river in Beacon in 2020. That's great. And also our other guest, uh, Jen Smith from New York Cider Association. Yes, and I'd love it if we could have Kyle tell us what we're drinking. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we're drinking native. It's a, it's a Hudson Valley um, spontaneous cider. We pressed off. It was all sourced uh, actually from a brewery up here, Sloop, that has a farm. Um, so Graft, it's called Graft Cider Native? It's just called Native um, because it's all native yeast, all native apples. Um, it's supposed to kind of capture the the, um, the wild yeast and bacteria 
and the flavor profiles that are created by them because um, you know at the end of the day we use less tannic varietals so a lot of the flavor profiles are created from the yeast and bacteria um, and we want to kind of showcase that so we macerate the the skin the apples into pumice we let it sit for a week and as soon as fermentation starts we get it away from oxygen into barrels let it sit nine months on top of the lees and then package and let it see another three months before we well, release. Well, cheers, guys. Welcome to the second episode of the State of the Cider Industry. Cheers. cheers. And uh, we've got our first call in. One of our good buddies from the Pacific Northwest. We talked to Mike Beck from Michigan earlier. Now we're going to talk to our buddy Reverend Nat, Nat West, out in the... I just say Pacific Northwest because it's it, to me it's all the same. How are you, Nat? Welcome to the show, Very man. Very good. Thanks for having me and including me the, from the far away reaches from New York. You know, you you've always... You've always uh, impressed me. You've, you've come to New York, d- done some marketing. Um, you're doing something totally different out there. Give us a little overview of your philosophy of, of cider, the apples that you have available to you, and, and some of the success that you've had, because you're, you're doing some rock and stuff out there. Yeah, I think, you know, the story of Pacific Northwest cider, or, or more importantly, the story of regional cider in the U.S. and indeed around the world is one of the apples. What apples are grown where? Um, it, it determines what kind of ciders that you make. So uh, we don't have the varieties of um, apples that you guys in New York do. I, I speak with uh, people from other parts of the country, and they get bummed out about Macintosh. Oh, I got too many Macintoshes, or I got too many Baldwins. Or, and I'm like, man, I, I kill for any of those varieties because the ones that we have out here, but we have in huge, huge quantities, are Granny Smith, Golden Delicious, Pink Lady, Fuja, Gala, uh, stuff like that. So we really have to make ciders that taste great with those apples that are available to us. You know, similarly to the way that um, folks in England don't get, don't import, um, you know, Granny Smiths or, or Red Delicious because they have those awesome bittersweet apples out there. So they make ciders that really accentuate the apples that are growing there as well. Great, man. Um, we've got a great room here. Uh, Eleanor from Eden Cider, uh, Gideon from Original Sin, Kyle from Graft. So we're going to ask you some questions too, okay? Who wants to start off with Kyle from Graft? Hey, how's it going? Um, I'm wondering, uh, since you guys make such a wide variety of ciders, kind of, you know, from when you started to now, how is your kind of vision of how you craft your ciders or what kind of ciders are you making now that you weren't making back then that you're excited about? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question because I think the, the the question that's that's that you could have asked is what um, what have preferences become what have cider drinker preferences become in the last uh, seven years since we started and I think in a lot of ways what what I make is just an indication of what sells well what people want to drink what the cider market out here uh, is demanding there's you know you look back seven or eight years and, and there was a a, um, a story being told by a lot of um, startup cider makers at that time about how we didn't have um, enough uh, bittersweet, bitter sharp, true cider apples, and that was going to be a, um, a, a depressant on the growth of the industry. How we couldn't make enough cider because we didn't have the apples. And um, now there are apples. There are those, you know, those awesome French and English bittersweet, bitter sharp apples available on the market, and nobody's buying them. Um, there are. You could buy. I could buy a bunch of frozen juice from last year's harvest. I could buy a bunch of fresh apples right now um, from from growers, and uh, there isn't a big clamor for them because you know we made those ciders back then, and customers didn't sell well. I mean, there was a reason why um, you know White Oak Cider in, in Yamhill County. He was in the business in the in the 90s and went out of business because nobody wanted those ciders. Ford Farms, another early pioneer of those English styles, and. Um, it wasn't until you know folks like myself and and two towns came along and and really started making delicious cider with those you know, more commodity of apples that were available um, that customers really adopted cider out here. Um, you know, a simple example is Wandering Angus. Um, they started off uh, making you know great ciders with heirloom and um, yeah, cider apples, and now they're the Wandering Angus side of their business is very small, and the Anthem side of their business is, is much larger. And Anthem is um, made using the same kind of apples that that I use, so um, it really we really have shifted from you know the complaint about not enough cider apples to I don't really care about cider apples. I'm interested in making um, cider using dessert, dessert fruit. Gideon has a question for you. Um, hey Nat, how's it going? Uh, so, uh, firstly, I visited Nat when he was still making cider out of his garage, and I oh he really bootstrapped his cider company from the beginning, which is pretty amazing. 
And so um, I must say about Reverend Nat, um, who's someone I feel like I know this industry well, he's oftentimes the most charismatic and smartest guy in the room. Um, when it comes to lecturing at CiderCon, he's, you know, he used to give a lecture about starting a cidery, which I know was very incredibly well thought out, as well as his most recent lecture last year was about the importance about being an outlier when it comes to the products you're making as well, which is something his, his ciders have always been. Uh, so you would, get on, you, you, you cash that check that I sent you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, actually, uh, yeah, so what's the question? Here's, here's a question. Uh, the question. He champagne. <laughs> uh, the question I have, you know, there, you know, obviously the Portland cider market is the largest per capita cider market in the country. You do sell your product at a higher price point than the rest of the country. Um, you know, what? tell us about the Portland market and whether you, you see the other markets, your, the higher price point translating to other markets on the West Coast as well. So, uh, Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, I, you know, I, I don't like to um, imagine that, you know, wherever Portland goes, everyone else will follow. I, I think that's just, you know, too hubristic. I do think that we really don't have – um, one United States cider culture. I think we have five or so regional cider cultures. Uh, so what works in Portland, what works in the, in the greater Pacific Northwest, including Seattle, um, you know, might not work anywhere else. Obviously, we have access to um, fruit year-round at incredibly inexpensive prices. Um, comparing notes with, um, I was just hanging out with um, Dan Potter from uh, Potter's Craft Cider in um, Virginia, and just this, this, this week, and we were talking about Apple prices, and he pays, uh, I want to tell you, it's, it's like three times as much what I pay um, for juice. So his culture, his pricing, his packaging, his storytelling has to be a different story than mine is because my costs are not in the apples the way his costs are. So I don't, I don't imagine that, you know, that the, the blueprint of Portland um, will roll out across the U.S., um, you know, because of that really di- huge differences in the way cider is made and, and the opportunities that cider makers have. But I, uh, on the flip side, I can say that it will roll out like Portland did in that um, Portland was the, um, you know, it still is in a lot of ways the center of craft beer in America. And I think that the path that we're on as cider makers and cider industry is um, just in the same path that uh, craft beer was on. And you know, the earliest, some of the earliest producers of craft beer in America were here in Portland, and they're still around, like Widmer Brothers and uh, McTarnahan's and, and Deschutes. Um, so I think it's, it's either one is likely. Either we have uh, these, these regional strengths and regional characteristics, or, um, you know, Portland is, um, you know, a harbinger of things to come for everyone nationwide. And I don't, you know, my business is 65% Oregon and staying stable at that percentage as we continue to grow. So I'm really a Portland-based business. Um, you know, I, I don't try to figure out um, the trends in other markets. I just add a little bit of icing onto, you know, the cake of that trend. So we sell in New York, for instance, and, you know, we're available in, you know, 25 places in, in the five boroughs. And um, it's just, a, you know, like a little icing on top of the cake that the, that the New York cider makers are building. Now, I just, um, I've met, only met you in New York, and we've done some great things together. Let's say next year I'm going to come out to Portland. G- give me a run-through, you know, places I should go, what, what I would do with you in, in your day-to-day, you know, life, <laughs> you know, a couple tap rooms, you know, what, I want to come out to Portland and experience the Reverend Nat uh, Cider experience. Sure. Well, I, I, I got I, I to gotta give you a burst your bubble right away that the greatest cider bar uh, that, that America had seen so far, Bushwhackers, recently closed this year. Um, Bushwhacker was the, um, uh, started by Jeff Smith and his wife, Erin. They uh, were the first people back in 2000 and I want to say nine or ten. Um, they opened up um, in a, a next to a subway in a strip mall in southeast Portland. Nothing, not an auspicious start, but it, it really gave. They really gave um, um, confidence to a lot of producers, myself included, to um, to start up. Jeff said, "Make cider. I'll, I'll be the first one to buy it," and he was the first one to buy it. So. Sadly, they're no, no longer around. That's not really indicative of anything that's going on in the Portland scene in general. They just lost their lease and they were a little tired and they moved on. There's a, you know, my, my cidery is here. This is a working cidery. You have to frequently get your feet wet if you want to go to the restroom, which is in the back of the, the building, step over hoses, etc. Um, we have a tap room, um, combination production facility. Um, Schilling has an awesome pub here in town um, with uh, 60, I think, cider handles, which is crazy. Um, 
you know, you want to also get out of Portland as well. We could go down and visit um, Kevin Zylinski at Easy Orchards. Um, he makes, um, you know, French-style, French-influenced cider, oftentimes better than French ciders that I've had. Um, you now, you know what, so we well. actually, um, Gideon just poured uh, an Easy Orchard. Wh- which one is it? So you can talk to us about it. Um, it's Hawk House. The Hawk House. I'm speaking Hawk for Guidon yeah. for the rest yeah. of the show. And I'm really glad you, you mentioned Kevin because there were a couple years ago, you know, you were at uh, Cider Week in New York, Jimmy's number 43, and you gave your great uh, cider seminary. And I think we had Kevin, Kevin uh, came out and gave a talk as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, Kevin, um, he's an orchardist first and foremost. He'll tell you that he's, he's, a, he's a poor cider maker, but a decent orchardist. Um, I think he's one of the best cider makers in America. Uh, he traveled to France. Um, and learned how to learn how they make cider. He doesn't make cider the French method, but he uh, makes a, a close approximation. That um, Hawk House is, um, I believe, it's all um, Jonathan apple. He grows a lot of the Jonathan variety. Jonathan is a parent of John of Gold, of course, and a parent of a num- number of other awesome apples um, uh, grown these days. Um, he does a really elaborate, slow, cold fermentation. Um, that that results in just these amazing bouquets and uh, frequently some residual sweetness. Um, you know that said it was named after the uh, a, a literal hawk house that he built on his property to uh, keep the uh, fruit eating birds out of his orchard. Uh, you know he adopted a family of hawks and encouraged them to kill little birds. Um, so that's the uh, the naming of that cider. So he's, little, he's a fantastic little bird guy. kill. I like that. Yeah, little, little bird killer cider. Yeah, that's yeah. What it could be called. Gideon's got another question for you. Uh, well, I got one comment about Easy Orchards. Is actually, it a question walk- or a comment? Well, it's a comment. Uh, I, I can, no questions. <laughs> uh, uh, I actually went to uh, Kevin's Orchard. One nice thing about his orchard is many years ago he got these varieties from France, which he's the only uh, orchard in the country which, which he grows. And I was walking through the orchard. I, I had an apple. It was delicious. It was a really interesting rusted apple. He sent me signed wood the next year. But, he, but one of the as- interesting aspects of his cider is the cider is made from French apples that no one else in the country is growing, so it's really unique, unique cider. So. Yep. Yeah. And now, what else are you doing? I mean, you're, you're mostly focused on Portland market. I know you've been to New York a couple of times. Are there any national events that you go to? Is, any other things that, that we should learn from you? You know, I, I, I think that my position in, uh, in cider is, I mentioned this, this metaphor already, it's really the icing on the cake. I recently started... Um, selling in North Carolina um, about a year ago. And I absolutely love North Carolina. We're going to start selling in Virginia here pretty shortly. Um, I love both of those markets because there is a strong established cider culture there. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, the same thing is happening out here. Two, uh, two Towns is the, the behemoth in Oregon, and we're sort of a value add. We're like a next step or we're an alternative to. So when I go to North Carolina, there's some great producers, Red Clay, um, is a fantastic producer there, Noble Cider out of Asheville. Um, they make great ciders, and they can go fight their local fight and educate consumers and educate buyers about what cider is and how cider should be treated. And then I can come in and show them what um, incredible diversity ciders can have. You know, from from on the one end is the kind of ciders that Kevin makes, and on the other end maybe some of the more esoteric ciders that I make. Um, and it's really important for me to encourage cider makers around the country to educate, educate, educate. Um, and then I can come in as just, you know, maybe even not the icing on the cake, just the candles on top of the icing on the cake. My mission is not to take over when I come into a market. It's just to show this vast diversity of cider as a beverage. Um, people tell me sometimes, oh, I don't like cider. And my response to them is, um, that's like saying you don't like sandwiches. <laughs> it's almost it's almost impossible. I mean, I'm sure some people don't like what sandwiches. What if I don't but, like sandwiches? <laughs> I mean, okay, you don't like sandwiches, but hey. th- nobody ever says, I don't like sandwiches, because they're like, I don't like peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't like a ham sandwich. Okay, there's a lot of diversity out there, and um, that's really my mission, is to is to broaden the perspective of cider in the U.S. for consumers. All right, and uh, Kyle from Grafton has a question for you. Yeah, um, I, I, think, I think you touched on a lot of great things about regionality and, and how each kind of um, region is defined by its makers and the apples and what they choose to make. Um, I know that this is a diverse market out in the Pacific Northwest, but what what would you say kind of is the defining styles that are kind of becoming popular with consumers out there that when you travel to other kind of regions, you see being less popular 
um, just kind of as like, cause, cause you know, in, in New York and everything, you know, we try to kind of create, you know, some of our, of our own industry and I've seen different styles become popular in different areas based on who's able to push and, and pull. Um, so I, I am interested in what the Pacific Northwest kind of has been pioneering because there's not a lot of communication right now, which I think is the most interesting thing. Um, even though we have, you know, social media and Instagram and everything, there's very little communication on what's going on. Um, on the West Coast versus what's going on on the East Coast, and you know, hopefully that that opens up a little more. But I would like sure. to have your thoughts on on what yeah, the I differences think, are. I think you know in, in New York in particular, there's this there's this Finger Lakes cider thing. There's this Orchard based cider thing. I think there's more cideries in New York than there is in the Pacific Northwest. But but collectively, New York cider makers are tiny. You know, like I spill more on the floor than they make, kind of thing. Um, it's not true, but you know the, the the scale is very is vastly different. But the so I think that what New York's and a lot of um, northern and graft an angry general, orchard. Yeah. <laughs> nine pin, nineteen eleven. Yeah, nine, nine pin, nineteen eleven. But, but keep sure, on talking, sure. Nat. Keep on talking, brother. About the, I think about the farm the farm based ones. I think that's what the Northeast is doing so well is oh, doing these farm the wine based trails, as wine well. trails, farm based. You know, like. Nine uh, pin, doing, 1911, farm-based products. Yeah, 1911 is, is huge for sure, yeah. Um, I, I think, greeting with Reverend now, taking his position, that um, the Portland scene was much more influenced than the craft beer scene. And yeah. early on, many more brands came out with 12-ounce cans. And New York City, in New York State, there's obviously a lot more people influenced by the wine industry. And Absolutely. even when you talk about Angry Orchard, Angry Orchard's volume's coming out of Cincinnati, not New York. So For sure. Yeah, right, so. right. Well, I think that, that, we, that extends to customers as well. Customers look at Northeast ciders as a farm-based product, and they, they look at Northwest ciders as a beer-based product. I mean, it's not, but they, they think about it in the same terms as beer. Wow, man. That's pretty cool. <laughs> we started off saying that, uh, Gene said when he first started out, people wanted to know if he was a draft cider or a, what was the other thing? Well, that, that was our, cider at, beer. In 1987, the whole argument was, was how to define what cider was. Um, and it all changed in, in Salem, Oregon in 2011, where we came together as a family. And we realized that we need to work for the common good. And that's what's mm. happened. And obviously, mm-hmm. clearly, Portland's got, Oregon's got one of the strongest state um, associations on which they take tours all over Europe. And they've become so a powerful entity as such. And then um, just to, to showcase uh, Nat's knowledge, Nat, pick a, when you've done the Cider Seminary, you really showcase... To you, what the best ciders in the world? Tell us about a couple of the ciders that that you would say are the best in the world when you do that well, course. I'll tell you, my favorite cider producer, no offense to the present company, is Eric Bordelais out of uh, Normandy. Maybe there's some nodding heads in the room there. Um, yep. He makes the Eleanor he makes says yes. A, he makes a, a perry, a fermented pears, not apple. His apples ciders are fantastic, but I think his perries are otherworldly. Um, he makes one called Granite. It just so happens to be the most expensive. One that he makes, uh, usually about thirty bucks for a seven fifty mil bottle, but it is. Uh, if it passes your lips, I don't know anyone who wouldn't uh, exclaim to themselves, "How the hell did he make it taste like this?" Those are my favorite ciders to drink. The ones where if you gave me all the time materials in the world, I still wouldn't know how to make it. Um, I wouldn't make it taste like. That's why I love about Ellie's ciders. It's like I drink them and I'm like, "There's no way I could make a cider like this." Uh, same thing for Kevin Zylinski, and then you know, to the tenth degree is what. Um, Eric Bordelais is making. Uh, same thing goes for some of the Spanish producers, particularly the Asturias region. Not so big on Basque ciders myself, but um, some of the uh, Asturian uh, producers like Fan Hul uh, are just doing a fantastic job. Um, and we've, we've got, we can get some of those products here in Oregon. They are that sort of uh, vinegary, uh, acetic acid uh, flavored, but they're light on that. And they can be just such crispness, dryness, and drinkability on some of those um, Asturian ciders that are just, uh, again, I, I don't know how they make them. I mean, I've, I've asked them and they've explained it to me, and I still don't understand. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I think there's just some fantastic ciders coming out of Europe that we're never really going to be able to clone in a, in a really effective way. But the same thing could be said for um, wine or uh, you know German pilsners. There's no American brewer who makes uh, a German pilsner wow. that, that, that tastes good. In a Matt, lot of ways. you're a rock star. I'll tell you what, I promise you we're going to get you back on to a whole whole hour with you. But right now, we're just going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio, State of the Side Industry. All right. Woo! Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. 
They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the Communications Director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Not only because I use it constantly, but because cabinet space is at a premium in New York City kitchens. My boyfriend and I were gifted our Le Creuset by his family last Christmas, and it was the first piece of enameled cookware we'd ever owned. I'd been fawning over the marine blue color, especially when I realized there were only a few left in stock. When we unwrapped the box, we were pleasantly surprised to see how big this thing was. I immediately started imagining what I could cook. Roast chicken, Texas-style chili, a leg of lamb, or my favorite, a huge batch of Marcella Hazan's bolognese. Head to lecrusade.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. This is a crazy cider drunk uh, state of the side industry show. This is our second hour. Uh, we're live at uh, Harry's Radio Networks, Roberta's Pizza. We've got some great guests here. We've got Jen Smith, New York Cider Association. Elna Legere, one of my favorite cider makers in America from Eden Ciders. Uh, Guido and Call, another great cider maker who's inspired us and, and led us for over 20 years. Ron Sansone has opened up a spoken spot. Ron, you've got a cidery in Connecticut. You just opened up. Two yep. words about it. Where is it and what are you doing? Uh, we're in Middletown, Connecticut. We're very small, open one day a week. Saturdays, 12 to 5, tap room. Oh, it's getting, a lot. getting sexier. It's cider week. We got a cider shower going on here. Is this um, purpose? Purpose to define the. Right. <laughs> it just, uh, it just exploded. Everywhere. And Kyle from uh, Graf. So. It was it was the, L, the 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 two LEs, right? And and it was you know as they you know is that just by you know describing your bubbly personality? And we just we just had a Reverend Nat from bubbly and forceful. Quick, we're on, guys. So again, you're at Spoken Spy, Middleton, Connecticut. Middleton, Connecticut. Thank you. Um, we're very small. Tasting room mainly, some kegs and distribution, still growing. That's great, man. We uh, got Kyle from Graf. Graf cider and, up in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. I would say Connecticut is the, obviously industry is a burgeoning industry. There's been so much press lately, Ron, and you're starting your first cider week next week, right? Yep. So, um, which is pretty amazing. And I, yeah, that's great. We this is we're in our our second segment of the show. Um, again, we just had a bit of out. We're going to be calling this guy Nick Gunn in a little bit. Um, you know, can you give us a backstory on Nick Gunn? Because we, we covered so far uh, someone from the United States Cider Association. We've talked to Mike Beck from Uncle John's in Michigan. We just had Reverend Nat from um, Nick Gunn is really one of the real characters in this industry. He started, he, uh, I think he went to a volunteered in forestry. You'd have to tell you the whole story. And he met his wife, whose family owned an orchard. So he originally started running an orchard and then decided to make cider. Um and was one of the very first cideries in, in Oregon and became a true expert when it comes to the aspects of making cider. And he's really also, once again, given a great deal back as far as the Portland scene. So um, he, he was behind know, what, uh, some brands? Um, he, well, he's in, he was behind, he started Wandering Angus, um, which also developed a product called Anthem. And he was recognized, Cornell University started a, has a program, uh, educational program teaching cider and I think he's one of the experts teaching cider nationally. Um, That's so. great. So we're going to get him on in a few minutes. But and Jen Smith, New York Cider Association, um, you know, how, how do you think the show's going? We're trying to cover the state of the cider industry. Is, are there any talking points that we haven't hit on so far? My goodness, thinking about the national industry, I was, I was reflecting on how having Michelle lead in and, and talk about um, some of the federal level issues that cider makers. Um, are experiencing some that she didn't touch on that that I'd raised too that I think are industry wide are things like label restrictions not being able to talk about vintage not being able to talk about region on your labels because of sort of head to head conflict with um, AVAs and and how I hope that in the future we can look to being more collegial and collaborative with the wine industry. Let, let's talk about that one about vintage. So we kind of ex accept and expect with wine, fine wine, that there's going to be a vintage on it. And we were taught as consumers since the 70s that you want to get a vintage wine. Mm 
even though blending's part of that tradition as well. Who wants to talk about why don't why can't we put vintage vintages on uh, cider? Eleanor, why can't we? Um, or beca- why because should can we? we or yeah. Should we? <laughs> we we can't, but we should. <laughs> um, and I think I think actually the first step of the USACM defining the guidelines between modern and heritage ciders is um, gives us a better basis for a conversation with the tax and trade bureau about vintage because most a lot of heritage ciders are made like wine so we press it harvest once a year um it's a slow cold fermentation it could take anywhere from five to 24 months to release a product and it's different every year because the apples are different every year um some apples are biennial the weather's different all of that so that that's a pretty solid argument so in a sense it's similar to vintage wine yeah all of our ciders are vintage even when we don't say they are uh, I'd say a couple things on that note. Even this year, there was so much rain that the level of bricks and cider um, apples was significantly down. So there's an absolute aspect of vintage when it comes to cider. There's also a very serious aspect of terroir. If you look at the historical books, there's so much in the history of apple growing in this country that a Roxbury russet in New York is different than a Roxbury russet in Ohio. It looks different, and the qualities are different. And I don't think people appreciate that yet, but over time, I think they will. I'd even argue that the Roxbury russet that's grown on the shores of Lake Ontario is different than the Roxbury russet that's grown in the, you know, heart of the Finger Lakes versus the Hudson Valley versus versus the Champlain Valley. Yeah. Or on a granite mountain and right near Canada. (laughs) Actually, can I even say that um, on my my little... Is that the Northeast Kingdom? (laughs) on, on On my little orchard, if you go several hundred feet, the soil qualities are different. So even within a very small portion the trees are going to grow different. And that's really one of the very special aspects of, of the wow. industry. This is so cool. We have so much to talk about. We'll do many more cider shows in the future. But now our, our next calling guest, Nick Gunn, who's a kind of a legend in the, the American cider industry. Nick, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Uh, how's everyone doing? It's great. We've got some great people here. Eleanor from Eden, Geden from Original Sin, Kyle from Graft, and uh, some other great people. Give us your spiel, man. Um, you know, Wandering Angus, CiderCon, give us a little overview of, of this how cider's changed and your role in it the last, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> I'll, I'll, do the, uh, I'll do a briefly uh, edited version because all those folks you have there have uh, probably told you a lot of uh, great things already. But uh, I started a cider company in uh, 2004 uh, with my wife, Mimi. Uh, that's when we started Wandering Angus off of a... Uh, vineyard area that uh, my wife's parents planted a vineyard in the 70s here in Oregon and we had some land that wasn't growing very good pinot grapes it was a little swampy uh, so we decided to grow some apples and get involved in fermentation of another sort uh, not compete directly with the family business uh, which is Bethel Heights Vineyard here in Oregon and they're still in operation to this day and we've we learned cider making through winemaking and kind of uh, transition from a very small cidery. Uh, we started about 300 cases a year in 2004. And uh, by the time I left uh, the company a couple of years ago, it was up to about 200,000 cases a year. Uh, so it was quite a, it was a long time. And when we started, there was only about five cideries here in the Northwest and maybe 50 across the country, uh, and it's obviously changed a lot today. Um, so it was a fun ride, and I'm still very much involved in the industry in other aspects. I'm a cider consultant now. I do a lot of work with startup cideries as well as growing cideries. Um, <clears throat> and I, I just really like teaching cider making and helping other people learn how to make cider. So I'm involved with the Cider Institute of North America on creating training programs to help cider makers uh, get better at their core science concepts of how to make good quality cider and, and just be better stewards of this awesome libation we love so much. Great. Uh, Jen Smith from New York Cider Association has a question for you. Hey, I sure. was actually going to ask you to tell us a little more about Cena, um, what you guys are working on and um, how you're, how it's expanding to be impactful on the quality of cider making in the United States? Yeah, so I kind of jumped into the Cena thing was industry driven uh, by 
a bunch of group of cider makers about uh, two years ago at CiderCon were kind of staring down a, a, a serious problem. I think it's something we've all known and dealt with that we have a lack of really great talent and really understanding knowledge in the industry of how to make cider. Um, you know, there's a lot of knowledge from across the pond. There's uh, some really, a few good pioneers who are willing to, you know, donate their time, but we needed a more robust education system on the cider making aspect. And I think, you know, one thing we realized as a nonprofit is that we didn't really have to reinvent the wheel entirely because, you know, our partners right now, which are Cornell University, Oregon State University, Washington State University, Brock University in Canada, they all have great winemaking knowledge and they understood about 90 to 95 percent of the process of cider making. But it was that last 10 percent of the practical knowledge of, well, how do you operate filters in this regard? How do you get your product stabilized in a marketplace that doesn't understand stable cider uh, that was a major, we felt like it was a uh, stumbling block for the industry, really, that quality on top of everything has to be our number one objective. And so we are in the process. We already have a core uh, curriculum, a base level, um, kind of an apprentice uh, or foundation course that's being taught at all those universities I spoke about that we are overseeing and helping them um, kind of accredit. So we're an accreditation uh, group uh, that's industry driven that kind of oversees all that education. But the next phases are a intermediate level and advanced level uh, curriculum uh, that will be much more built out. And by CiderCon of this year, we'll be releasing our uh, intermediate level coursework. So Nick, it's called, uh, it's called CENA. Can you just Cena, yeah, so that's the, it's seen as the acronym, and it's Cider Institute of North America. So it's a, um, yeah, it's basically an educational advocacy nonprofit. Um, we're not a member organization. We're kind of by the industry, for the industry. And we're just kind of here to really help guide the existing um, education framework that's here in America, the really great research institutions, and help them understand, you know, what does the industry need to move forward? So we're working with Cornell and Oregon State wow. to develop you know the what? curriculum. I am going to check that out because it's exactly what, what I need to learn more about. And Eleanor from Eden, she's got the next question for you. Hey, Nick. Cool. Hey, Eleanor. Um, my question is, um, I know you're doing consulting as well, and I'm just wondering if you would share, like, what do you see the most common issues among cider makers um, that Cena will address? But, like, as you, in, in your travels, what do you sort of see as sort of the, the most common Issues. It's like issues, not problems. Ah, the whole, <laughs> I see the biggest one is the holy grail of cider making, which you know all too well, Eleanor, which is the shelf-stable, residually sweet products um, that, uh, that maintain their, their subtlety, their balance, uh, their sweetness over time in the bottle. Uh, that is something that I think the cider industry to this day still grapples with and how to do it properly, you know, without impacting flavor and quality. Uh, you know, the most cider drinkers still appreciate uh, the new coming ones, still want that sweet cider. And uh, as much as we all would love to only sell dry cider, we have to sometimes offer some more entry-level products. So stabilization is a really big one. But then the other one is really the... Um, the business side of things, which I'm helping Cena work on more, we're building out our our professional program of how to teach better business concepts of cash flow management. And I think a lot of cider companies, especially now with our more hyper competitive market, need to really understand like how to how to figure out their profitability points and really understand you know what products are going to work work and what aren't. Uh, now you need to be a better business person, you know more than before. Uh, Nick, you know, when I, I first tried your ciders, you were part of Wandering Angus and then Anthem. They were some of the first West Coast ciders I ever had in New York. Um, t tell us how you how you went with Anthem. I know that's that's a bigger brand for you. Just tell me the story of Anthem because it kind of showcases that, that phase of the cider industry. Yeah. So that, I and I got to give full credit to my business partner, past business partner, and, and current owner of Wandering Angus and Anthem, James Kahn, on that. 
he, you know, my wife Mimi and I had a lot of winemaking knowledge, and we understood uh, tasting room sales. We understood selling high-end bottles of wine. Uh, my wife to this day sells very nice wine in New York um, for very high dollar prices, and we. That was the world we came from. We didn't really understand how to get people in at the ground level. And uh, that really took the business mindset. And James, that's what he brought to the table, really the understanding of, well, to get in at a lower price point, you have to start figuring out how to make do with, with apples that people aren't really appreciating, the underappreciated call apples, which uh, here in the Northwest would oftentimes just get dumped because they literally just could not find homes for them. People were just dumping apples uh, in ditches. And uh, so, you know, in a lot of ways, that really was it's an unsung hero in some ways for the packing houses. It's not like they were making a lot of money off of them, but at least they weren't wasting them. But also, it was just a really good way to get people into 100% juice product, you know, that wasn't made from an imported concentrate that still had a high quality, but was more approachable in both flavor and price point. It's, it sounds like an old-fashioned concept. You take the, the the things that nobody wants and you turn them into alcohol. Which is exactly cider's heartbeat. I mean, that's the that's the pride and joy of cider making. It's always the ugliest, the nastiest, the bittery, the bitter apples. I mean, it's it's the beauty of cider that you can really make uh, some beautiful stuff out of things that other people just kick to the curb. Wow. Hey, uh, Kyle from Graft has a question for you. Hey, how's it going? Um, hey, Kyle. Okay, good to hear from you. Um, quick question for mm-hmm. you. So, you're talking about the hyper compet, you know, the hi- the hyper competition that's kind of happening in the industry right now, and being a consultant, and probably with the hyper competition being more of the fruit adjunct or the ones that are kind of going after the beer industry. How do you work? to build differentiation into the business model. While there's a lot of different ciders kind of uh, on the smaller producer level, um, the ones that are super competitive seem to be uh, on a much smaller stratosphere, which, you know, a lot of bartenders, stuff like that, are say, oh, this cider, how is this cider different from the other cider? Uh, so how do you how do you kind of deal with that and, um, on your level as a consultant? Or are you just trying to achieve great, you know, good good flavor overall? I mean, I try to really get people to start out with something simple, just basically like a core four principle. So I, I learn first and foremost, like what are their, what's your personal philosophy on cider making? What are the styles you really have a passion for? What do you want your brand to be all about? And then I try to massage that into a profitable business model, which <laughs> sometimes is a difficult activity. Uh, and uh, sometimes I'm only able to get my clients to do maybe one profitable cider out of those core four that they start with or core three. Uh, but just having one, you know, that they can really say, this is something that we're going to, we're going to keep the lights on with. And you have to have that concept has to come first and foremost. And that's probably my biggest impact on a lot of my clients is that they don't really understand how to balance you could totally make the esoteric ciders that have amazing rare flavors and have been wood aged and are, you know, take two years to make and are gorgeous. Uh, that's totally, that should be part of your program if you want to, but you also have to keep your lights on and pay your employees. And I think in this marketplace, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's just about not doing too much of any one thing, you know, focusing on a few things you're really good at. So, and I know. think that's the danger is everyone wants to do it. They want to be everything to everyone. And, Nick, we're, we're yeah. going to keep rolling. We're not, Matt, we're not going to take a break. We're going to keep going. Uh, Gideon, Gideon's got a question for you. Well, let's see. Cool. First of all, I could not agree more with the, the principle that every, you really need a product that speaks to the end consumer. Um, it's really critical, especially in a more crowded market. I'm going to go back, Nick, to 2011. All right, you ready for this? <laughs> right. I like so, Nick. Nick, you're laughing. You're the first call we've had. You're laughing. This is Nervously. funny. So we, so we went going back to Salem, Oregon, and I remember that first cider con which you and James ran, and you were talking about visions of what cider con and cider could be in America. Has that vision been fulfilled? Because I must say, you guys were talking about stuff which I thought would never happen. And I'll tell you the reason why is because I had already been beating the street for a number of years, and I'd become a cynical old man even at that stage. And so I just started wondering, like, 
Is this what you thought the reality would be, and where do you see it going from here? Uh, that's a good question. I, I uh, man, flashing back to 2011 is is a little tricky. That uh, that was really the the heat of the big upswing in the cider industry, and really the beginning of the the hockey stick growth curve. I think you know those were a little. That was a little bit of a false. Um, False enthusiasm, I think, within the industry. And what I'm actually excited about now is that we've leveled off into a more sustainable growth pattern. You know, we're not, and no one's out there expecting 100% year in, year out growth, uh, or you shouldn't be. You know, that's just not a sustainable business model. No industry can grow that fast. And I think now we're, we're seeing it settle into just smarter business concepts. The people that are doing well are the ones that, like I said, understand cash flow. They understand how to make great cider, but they also understand how to run a really good business. And that is going to prove better for the long run than this kind of uh, all of a sudden there's just a thousand ciders out there and some of them are good and some of them aren't. I think people, I do see good times. So my vision is somewhat fulfilled. I got to say that I didn't really understand whatever the rest of the world was doing. I think James and I had a really focused idea of what we wanted to do. Uh, I think what's really exciting is that the rest of the industry had kind of grown up around us and continues to grow beyond. And I think now I see, I do see more growth. I just see it. Um, I see it in a smarter, smarter way now. I think it's still going to be another 20 years, maybe 10 years till cider has, the recognition that you know maybe some of the better craft beers have in in local craft beer areas, but it's it's coming along and hey, it's going to get there. And he, oh, go ahead, Nick. Just uh, stay with us for a minute. We're we're going to just t- talk in in the studio for a minute. So, uh, Ron, we just tasted another. So we've been tasting ciders throughout the show too. Ron, what's this next cider we have? Headwater Cider Company's New England Dry from Massachusetts. Wow, who brought that? Gideon brought it. Gideon brought it. <laughs> down from Cider Days. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, let, let's go back in, in studio for It's the for other Peter Mitchell. Peter Mitchell. <laughs> and, and Peter Frankly. is working to establish the Massachusetts Cider Association, yeah. I think. Yeah. So. yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and you helped put the show together, but, you know, you've really been, for 20 years, you've been all over the country. You know, you've got your orchard now in New York, but... Um, what what do we have not talked about? What what talking points have we not held? Um, yet? I would say a couple of things. One is that there are since we've been on if air for anyone is, two hours. Really, that's <laughs> right. We could be on for more hours, by the way. But then, for any real cider enthusiast, there are several events that you need to attend. One of them is CiderCon, and one of them is Cider Days, which has occurred in Massachusetts, which Peter Mitchell is very involved with. Um, and you know, these these um, educational seminars are very significant as far as building a sense of what is going on in the, in the, in the category, as well as community as well. That's so. great. And then Eleanor and Nick was talking a lot about the business of cider. Um, do, you also think about the business of cider. Do you want to give us any pointers or, you know, say, Ron's starting out, I'm, I want to start out? Um, so I, I had a business background before I got into cider, um, and so I know exactly why I'm losing money. Really <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do a blog called Cidernomics, which is sort of little hand-drawn charts on sort of key economics. So you just e- do spreadsheets to torture yourself, right? Uh, that's actually like my pastime. Like how much blood relief. did I lose? Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. I, 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 if we have limited time left, like, I want to hear a couple things. One is I'd like to hear a little bit more about Spoken Spy and what they're doing. It's sort of the newest cider maker here, and also um, Gidon has been doing all this crazy, amazing stuff on apple varieties and the history of apple varieties. Um, and even if you don't get to talk about it much, you should have them on, and look, we should do a whole like apple session. Yeah, like. and, and I know you're you're doing that tomorrow, <laughs> Union Square uh, Green Market. You're going to be talking about your cider apple varieties, right, Gideon? Uh, yeah, I'm going to doing a tasting. I grow 150 varieties upstate. Actually, Eleanor as well grows has an orchard in Vermont. Uh, but I was very influenced. Actually, another um, element of, like, I, I actually visited the USDA Orchard in Geneva, New York, which has 2,500 varieties. And that had an incredible influence on me in terms of the desire to plant an orchard. And my family had a dairy farm um, in upstate New York where we had land. And as a result, I decided to plant an orchard. And the great thing about it, as much as you think you know about apples, there's always more and there's always a greater uh, knowledge of any specific apple that you can so ascertain. One thing so. earlier we talked to Reverend Nat, Nat West. So it, is it true that in the Northeast, you feel like we have a lot more yeah, apple varieties? Yeah, actually, varieties? New York State has the most diverse selection of apples. Michigan is a close second. And as it was gone, once again, 
the, the ciders are different. You can be in a bar and have a Michigan cider next to a New York cider next to a Washington State cider, and they will taste different just because of different apples that are grown there, as well as apples from Vermont, uh, Virginia, Vermont, uh, as uh, North Carolina. So that's really another aspect which makes the cider very special, the industry very special. Great. And so we're wait a trying second. to cut. Matt didn't stand up for the West Coast. Uh, <laughs> come on. Where's the West Coast love here? <laughs> What you the like, largest apple producer in the planet. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I, this I would is echo a key that. Difference the with, um, apples, though, like, I miss yeah. the Northeast for so many reasons, but I, my love of the heritage varieties you guys grow in the Northeast, are, it's pretty amazing. And this is why we're not beer. I mean, the vast majority of beer is made from stuff out of bags that come from, you know, big standard commodity products. You know, you can make it all year round. And apples are just not that way. We're, we're fruit. We're more like wine. And actually, in Washington State, this is going to be a big change now where 40% of trees grown next year are Cosmic Crisp, right, developed by Washington State. So just as you think you know the apples of a region, it changes. And that's always been the case. Great. Let's just jump. Ron, you know, Spoken Spy, you opened up in Middletown, Connecticut. Yeah. Quick. So, I mean, it's a quick small snapshot. tasting room. A lot of fun. The tasting you room. You open with a huge budget. Nope. Uh, and you owe very like little, <laughs> very little money. We were very lucky to find a great building in our town that was a motorcycle factory. That's where the spoke in our name comes from. And um, you know, we worked with the town, got a great lease, worked with local orchards, got great apples. You're you're making the cider. We make all the cider there. Everything we sell, and um, the tasting room is open I, one day. I like so your model. I like when there's not debt. There's you're not in over your head, yes. and you're gonna try to generate yep. cash flow. I bought as much used equipment as I can. I work with great orchards with, you know, reasonable prices, and uh, it's it's just Nick. What, what would you do if you, if you came here and you, you met Ron's just starting out? Even he doesn't want to say, but I know Nick. You know what? What do you give a guy who's really just started out like that? And, uh, I would run away from Ron like he was on fire. Oh, <laughs> and he has no budget to pay. No, you, he, right? uh, no, I mean, he's been he's been working at this a long time. I think the biggest thing about Ron, which I appreciate, which I think a lot of people miss, is like the planning that goes into it. He was a lover of cider forever before he ever decided to go pro, and I think he spent so much time honing in his craft and his recipes. I can bring business knowledge, as can Eleanor, or anyone that understands business concepts really well. But to be a really good cider maker and to have a great palate, that takes a long time. And he, he put a lot of time in. He and came already with a good palate. So he, had a, to, he had good to go. No one's visited more cideries in this country than Ron. Ron is yeah, really I've been everywhere. true. So, Ron, what, just tell us. It's not just visiting you, the ceteries. You the teach education. me, Ron. It's so education, too. I got to so. go to Spoke and Spy in Middletown. I know our friends in the room. Where should I go? I want to go out west. I want to go in um, the south. Where are some places that pop up for Spain? you? Spain. I love Spain. <laughs> I love England, Herefordshire. Um, what about closer to home? Pacific Northwest is great. Yeah, but what, and, um, what got you into... My favorite place is the Hudson Valley. So. But what got you into cider in the first place? Since Nick mentioned it, um, I I've went known to you a long England, time. So I went to school in England, started drinking in the '80s. I'm old, I guess. And um, before Woodchuck, before any of these other things were around, so got into cider, started making cider at home, and here I am. And do you think that we will ever have an appreciation of cider the way that the English did or do? Um, it's different there. I, they drink cider like it's water. I, it's it's everywhere. It's I don't even think they consider it an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> it's just except for the white lightning. Yeah, well, that's, exactly. yeah, yeah. that's a whole other. It comes thing. in two liter bottles. Right? I also, I also <laughs> three liter bottles. Let, let, let's end with that. I want I want just a little talk about the the a cider culture you can either aspire to or where we think our cider culture could go. Anybody want to tackle that? I would say Reverend Nat's point of educate, educate, educate. When I started in the late 90s, Brooklyn Brewery is my distributor, and the founders of the Brooklyn Brewery went bar to bar in New York City and educated people at a time when micro, uh, the craft beer scene was really at an infancy. So exactly what Jen is doing and Michelle is doing is critical for the business. The more we get out there and just educate people on the grassroots level, the better. Jen? I'd say contextualizing cider as a part of a food culture. It is a farm-based product. It is an agricultural product, and it is to be enjoyed as such. 
I, I think of what Steve Wood always said, which is the day when people feel like they need to keep a good red wine, a good white wine, a good beer, and a good cider in their closet in case somebody shows up is what we're aiming for. I like that. And also, maybe we should have some cider for Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> yeah, just a little. Pick it. Little. So why don't we pick cider? Yeah, Nick, anything, anything else? Like, you know, building that culture of cider in America? Anything? No, I just, I would echo what everyone has said already, and just to say that the sense of place is totally part and parcel to the whole message that every region has their own flavor, their own style, their own type of apples they grow. And people really buy into the local bore movement for cider. That is a huge winning selling point over beer, which is mostly coming from, you know, I can't remember if that was Eleanor that or Jen that was saying that, but it was coming from a one source spot. Cider is very localized. And people take a lot of pride in their all-American fruit and where it's coming from. I think cider has a lot of room to really enhance that. Nick, thank you so much for joining us, man. We're just going to wrap it up. Uh, parting words. Gideon, you helped put the show together. Again, uh, state of cider industry in the, the United only States. The issue, the state of industry is obviously an insanely large subject. And there are so many characters you could have on to discuss the elements of it. So it's impossible to to... To, to, to properly analyze the subject within a two-hour span. But, uh, <laughs> but I think that... Uh, you had no. some good points. And Especially then and, and Kyle, last thing. So you're doing some cool... We know everyone here is doing cool things for Cider Week New York City. Uh, what else are you doing this week? Because you're here all week, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. We're, Congrats. We're, we're here all week. Um, yeah, that, that's better answered by... Uh, Favorite by, tap room. Favorite tap Where your products sold? Uh, Covenhoven, because they're huge supporters of what we do. Amazing. Out here at Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Love them, Covenhoven. Yeah, Beer Street. Beer Street. Great spot. Uh, you're doing something great with uh, the Cider Society guys on Saturday, too. Uh, where, where's that? We're doing a bottle. You and Lou's here. Lou from C- Cider Society's here. Uh, the, well, Gadon is gracing us with all his Apple knowledge on Saturday at Sunswick in Astoria, New, uh, New York. Uh, it's the... Ultimate Heirloom Apple Tasting and Cider Bottle Shares. We're going to be, a lot of great bottles are being popped. Um, a lot of great apples are being tasted. And again, it's spreading the, the gospel of picking cider throughout Cider Week. Especially. And we didn't get to have you on, but it's great having you the Cider Society on Instagram. And our special guest, Jordan Warner, who's a, kind of a cider expert and a producer of radio shows. How you doing, Jordan? Good. Thanks for letting me sit in and drink all this cider. And give us a quick shot. Last night you did a very cool event with Heritage Radio Network called Co-Ferments. We did. We took some of these things we've been talking about through this whole two hours here and expanded them into a conversation with not just cider makers, but winemakers and brewers. We had Lauren from Grimm. We had Vanessa from Black Duck Cidery, uh, Krista Scruggs from Zaffa Wines in Vermont. And we had Derek Trowridge from Old World Winery in Sonoma. And all of them are playing around with things that are a little bit different than what you would expect. And I think the takeaway for what we learned last night in the panel, which we'll post the recording on Heritage Radio soon, is that it's really it's about expectations. And we've talked about that with language here today and style and all these things. And if people know what to expect, they're either willing to try it because of that or Try it because it's not going to be what they expect. Awesome. And then Jen Smith, New York Cider Association, you came on a few years ago, started running the Cider Weeks. I'm really proud of you. I think it's a really special Thanks, thing Jimmy. you've been doing. Amen. And uh, we'll be there Thursday night. The, it's sold out, but uh, Lower East Yeah, if Cider you didn't Fest. get a ticket, you should follow New York Cider, spelled out on Instagram, Cider Week on Facebook. No, so that you're able to uh, take advantage next time we announce an event. <laughs> you can also ch- check out the calendar at ciderweeknyc.com. There are a bunch of great events. Jimmy's event on Saturday. Cider Feast NYC. Exactly. The uh, Bushwick Cider Market Brooklyn at Brooklyn Cider, Cider House on Sunday. Great opportunities at every price point, ranging a broad array of but different styles. But, Jen, styles. honestly, you, you really have done a great job. You know, you're, you're from the industry. I really like you. And I just want to thank like you, you so much for what you I like done everyone in this in room. So, Some of you I just learned I like you. Big shout out. Thanks again, everybody. You've got Kyle from Graf, Ron from Spoken Spy, Geeden from Original Sin, Eleanor from Eden, Lou from Cider Society, Jordan from Heritage Radio, and, and Jen from uh, New York Cider Association. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks to our producer, Justin Kennedy, engineer Matt Patterson, intern Dylan. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us on the State of the Cider Industry Beer Sessions Radio. <laughs> We'll catch you next time on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right.
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.